Happy Canada Day. Ain't no act like the British North America Act. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so today, hello everybody. <laughs> My name is Jonah. And I'm Lindsay. Welcome back to Panastoria. Where we've just lost our minds. Yeah, this is our... For those of you who didn't really, like, who, who don't, or don't remember, we recorded our last episode, like, twice. Yeah. Because yeah. my mic stopped recording 15 minutes in, and I didn't realize it until we were 53 minutes in. So once again, we're too poor to really fix this problem, and we're now recording from one mic. So yeah. if you would like to sub- help us, be less poor. We're and- too poor, and I'm too lazy to figure out this stupid thing, and we don't have time. <laughs> mostly Lindsay, we just need... I feel bad. Lindsay's tired. I want her to get home and, and get, also, get a good sleep. Patreon plug. Yeah. Patreon please support plug. us if you want so us to not record from one mic like the weird walk off the earth people with four people and one guitar. Yeah. <laughs> so today, anyway. today, as it's probably evident by the, by well, to our Canadian listeners, by the the, the title, we are talking about Confederation or um, as one of our listeners had, had said, the celebration of the founding of the white supremacist state of Canada. He knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> I'm not going to say who it is, but like... <laughs> we don't even know this person, really. No, we, we, we've never met him. No hard feelings, man. Like, okay, it, no. <laughs> but to be honest, I was a little pissed when I saw you shared our thing. Because I was like, he better not be insinuating this is what we're saying. Yeah. Because like, I mean, I want to preface this, especially since we're actually recording this episode on Indigenous People's Day. <laughs> <laughs> we're really just talking about confederation specifically. We're not going into all of the other horrible acts that helped found Canada. No, we're not going into we're the not. like the hugely political. We're, we're going to talk about a lot of the colo- well. We're going to talk about the colonialism and all of that stuff later because we need to, but not Wait, in this no, episode. Right oh, away. I mean, right away. Yeah. I, and uh, of yeah. course, we will acknowledge that yes, a lot of horrible stuff to say it mildly. But confederation still happens. We confederation still happens, but yeah, horrible things did happen in the aftermath and whatnot. We will be doing our own ep- individual episodes on that. Right now, we are just focusing on confederation. confederation itself. So what had happened and how it came about and kind of what it is really, what it means exactly. So this is going to be a quick episode. I mean. There's so the the, the, so the much last to say. couple episodes. Well, I mean, the, these two episodes are kind of quick. But what do you want? Lindsay's tired, and you get two like you get a bonus in consecutive weeks. What do you want? We're and then we're doing the moon landing, which is going to be like three hours. We're working hard for you, people. Yeah, please and appreciate so, it. So anyway, money. no, I'm just kidding. Uh, anyway, money, money's good. But anyway, so <laughs> we're gonna it we're gonna good. jump right into it. Prior to Confederation, there are several attempts at colonizing Canada by different European groups. First of all was the, were the Vikings led by Leif Erikson, who's son of Eric the Red. He attempted to settle in Newfoundland, what oh, they called Vineland in 1000 AD. And they called it Vineland. Do you know the answer why? Was it Vineland or Vinland? It was Vineland or Vinland. I've heard there's it. No, it's like, no, there's no E on it, right? I know, but the, yeah, I've heard no, it pronounced both okay. ways. But it was to be called... I say Vineland because it was named after the vines from the grapes. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you can call Which it. I forget, I grow a new I think it's like tomato, tomato thing. But anyway, so yeah. So it was uh, named after the vines that uh, the grapes grew off of. And they became really fond of grapes, which is hilarious. I forget the grapes grow in Newfoundland. Yeah. The settlement is known as Lonzo Meadow today. It's still there, miraculously. Pretty sure my parents went. I'd love to go. 
but his, the settlements did not last because they were eventually chased off by what they called the Skraelings, which I actually think is an awesome term, <laughs> which were actually the First Nations people already living in Newfoundland at the time. Not uh, happy about the Vikings showing up. <laughs> definitely not. And surprise, <laughs> surprise, they were able to beat off the Vikings somehow. Well, I mean... I mean, Vikings... that comes a lot from the like misunderstood Vikings because everyone assumes they're just all warriors with battle axes, but that's not true. No, but I mean all. they were no, and they're also known mostly for pillaging rather than fighting, <laughs> fighting and conquering. Yeah. And also, again, not all of them were actually doing that. Most of them are just like most Vikings, like the vast majority of Vikings are just settlers. Exactly, especially on <laughs> Vineland. Yeah, but like they're literally all just settlers. They're yeah. just trying to live life. They're not yeah. actually yeah. So myths about Vikings. Yep. 497 years later, in 1497, John, I'm going to pronounce it this way, John Cabot. I'm sure most people pronounce it Cabot, but yeah. I pronounce it Cabot. I went to French immersion. Hmm. But uh, John Cabot landed on Newfoundland as well and is generally considered the first European to land on the North American coast since the Vikings. So not counting Christopher Columbus in the Caribbean and South America. Yeah, he was the first one since <laughs> the Vikings to land on the North American coast. His landing spot is actually disputed, but the British and Canadian governments agreed to choose Cape Bonavista as the location for the 500th year celebrations. <laughs> so it might not even, it might be Cape Bonavista, probably isn't, we'll never know. The first settlements in North America were made by a man named Samuel du Champlain, who began exploring Quebec in 1603 and began preparing the first permanent European settlement north of Florida at Port Royal Acadia, which is now Quebec City. Champlain was also the first European to document the Great Lakes and the first to publish maps of the region. He also, also ensured a peaceful and friendly community with the First Nations people, which was um, shocking at the time because, I mean, Europeans and no, the natives... No, they all really tried to sign treaties. They just weren't always there. Well, I mean, the Spanish <laughs> were kind of... Yeah, well... Spanish were a different story. The British were obviously a different story. You'll find out about that later. Yeah, so Louis the... I gotta look. Louis the Thirteenth named Champlain the governor of New France in 1620, and Champlain died on Christmas Day, 1635, in Quebec City. Canada came under British rule following the 1763 Treaty of Paris. There was a joke I made in a previous episode. There is a lot of Treaty of Parises. And this Treaty of Paris ended the Seven Years' War, or what was known as the French and Indian Wars in North America. The British already had established colonies in the 13 colonies, which is now the modern-day East Coast United States, and what is known as Rupert's Land, which makes up like part, part of Ontario, Manitoba, and the Northwest Territories. But they were given possession of what is, was then known as Canada following the, this treaty. The only territory France maintained in Canada were the islands of Saint-Pierre and Micoline, which they still govern to this day. It is literally like within almost spitting distance off the coast of Newfoundland. These two tiny islands that are fr under French rule. So it is the very last colonial attachment of France in North America. In order to keep order amongst the 70,000 francophones living in the newly acquired territory, the British passed what is known as the Quebec Act, which allowed those living in New France to retain their Roman Catholic faith and to continue using the French system of civil law. The Quebec Act is seen as one of the factors which angered the Americans to the point of revolution. 
The British began the expulsion of French speakers in Acadia in 1755, with many of them relocating to Louisiana. This is how the Cajun population was born. Acadia was made up of part of the Gaspé Peninsula, the Maritime Provinces, and part of Maine. During the American Revolution, patriots attempted to invade Quebec with the help of some Canadian militia. However, most Canadians remained loyal to the British. Therefore, they and the large British garrison there were able to push the Americans back south. Following the American Revolution, the Canadian territories were reorganized into the province of Upper Canada, which is now modern southern Ontario, and Lower Canada, which is Quebec, along with St. Lawrence and Labrador. The reason why the Upper and Lower are reversed is because it depended on the flow of the St. Lawrence River. So yeah, the was, mouth of the river was Upper. I always found that really confusing. Yeah. Kid. <laughs> well, it's the same with Egypt. Upper Egypt is in the south and Lower Egypt is in the north, but that was because of the way the, the river, river flowed. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I always found that really confusing as a kid. <laughs> yes, me too. <laughs> so the American, and trust me, going to French Still immersion. almost kind of Yeah, do. going to French immersion, you learn a lot about lower Canada, especially. <laughs> yeah, this brought back some flashbacks from junior high. Couple. Yeah, but it was quite easy to research as a result. But anyway, the Americans would again attempt to invade during the War of 1812, but the invasion would prove unsuccessful and result in the White House suffering some from, from some fire damage. Just a touch. <laughs> Which is just a minor way of putting that. We burned it, it down. That the British and the Canadians burnt the motherfucker down. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the explosion of the North American fur trade led to the creation of the Hudson Bay Company in 1670, which I believe is still the long, longest continuous company in North America and the Northwest company in 1789 and with various others in the United States, which we're not going to talk about because welcome. Yeah. This made Rupert's land valuable territory for the British Rupert's land stretched from Quebec, Labrador, the Quebec Labrador border in the East to Baffin Island in the North and to the Alberta BC border in the West. So it was big. And it was also territory governed directly by the Hudson Bay Company. <laughs> so it's very much similar to the way the British East India Company was in charge of India <laughs> for a while. The trade was so valuable and the trade companies were so powerful, it actually started a war between Hudson Bay Company and Northwest Company in 1812 called the Pemmican War over the Red River Colony. So what Pemmican is, just really short is dried buffalo buffalo meat pounded pounded into a powder and mixed with melted buffalo fat and it's often also mixed with berries it's very good mm, if you've ever had some it's very very good. good the reason why it's called the pemmican war is because the hbc would import provisions from england while the nwc would obtain locally procured pemmican the war eventually led to the merger of the nwc and, and into the hbc in 1821 it also further create conflict between the British and the Métis, but that's, as CGB Grey would say, is a story for another time. Yeah. So that's all I got for pre-colonialism. As you can see, I skimmed through that as quickly as possible because there is a lot that... There's a lot that we'll just talk about later. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Samuel de Champlain, like that whole thing could be a season easily, so... (laughs) Anyway. I love my country, but not that much. Um, yeah, so, (laughs) on the road to Confederation, there were some rebellions, because every good country is formed with a rebellion, right? That's how that works? Anyway. (laughs) Um, As you find out, not in this case, but we'll get there. They're not good rebellions, but they're rebellions. (laughs) Um, so, yeah, Upper and Lower Canada both rebelled. (laughs) 
<laughs> they were both thrown into turmoil from 1837 to 1838. It's pretty much just a really tumultuous year when insurgents mounted rebellions in each colony against the crown and the political status quo. So the two rebellions were critical events on the road to confederation and Canadian nationhood, even though the rebellions themselves were mm, not good. Uh, not great. Uh, yeah. So the rebellion in Lower Canada was led by Louis-Joseph Papineau and his patriots, as well as moderate French-Canadian nationalists, who together dominated the elected legislative assembly. Since the 1820s, they had peacefully opposed the authority of the Roman Catholic Church and challenged the powers of the British governor and his unelected advisors, demanding control over the way the revenues raised in the colony were spent. Their political demands, which included democratic pleas from responsible government, were rejected in London. This rejection, coupled with an economic depression for French-Canadian farmers in the 1830s, plus rising tensions with the largely urban Anglophone minority, led to protest rallies across the colony and eventual calls for, by the more radical patriots for armed insurrection. The first outburst of violence came in November 1837 in a series of skirmishes and battles between the Patriot rebels and trained British regulars as well as Anglophone volunteers. The defeat of the disorganized rebels was followed by widespread Anglophone looting and burning of French-Canadian settlements. <laughs> Papineau and other rebel leaders fled to the United States. <laughs> I'm starting to understand Quebec a little bit more. <laughs> right. Uh, with the help of American volunteers, a second rebellion was launched in November 1838. Once again, it was put down easily and quickly due to poor organization, and once again, it was followed by further looting and devastation in the countryside. <laughs> <laughs> We're just going to loot you again. Very British. Right? Um, <clears throat> the two uprisings left 325 people dead, all of them rebels except for 27 British soldiers. A little bit of a lopsided defeat there. Okay. Uh, nearly 100 rebels were also captured. Maybe they shouldn't have rebelled. Anyway. Following the second <laughs> uprising, Papineau departed the U.S. for exile in Paris. And then in Upper Canada, the insurgency was, yeah, the insurgency in Lower Canada inspired Anglophone radicals in the neighboring colony of Upper Canada to take their own action against the crown, although theirs would be a smaller and less deadly revolt. <laughs> because no one can riot. It's like literally it. like on an island. No one it? riots like the French. As I think yeah, it's true. But I think, like, if I'm correct, the Upper Canada Rebellion was basically centralized around an island. It was in Toronto. Yeah, but, like, anywhere. Sorry. Yeah. Um, so the rebellion in Upper Canada was led by William Lyon Mackenzie, a Scottish-born newspaper publisher and politician who was a fierce critic of the Family Compact, which was an elite clique of officials and businessmen who dominated the running of the colony and its system of patronage. Mackenzie and his followers also opposed the system of land grants that favored settlers from Britain as opposed to those with ties to the United States, many of whom were denied political rights. In 1838, after years of failed efforts at peaceful change, Mackenzie convinced his most radical followers to try to seize control of the government and declare the colony a republic. About 1,000 men, mostly farmers of American origin, gathered for four days in December at Montgomery's Tavern on Young Street in Toronto. On December 5th, several hundred poorly armed and organized rebels marched south on Young Street and exchanged gunfire with a smaller group of loyalist militia. The bulk of the rebel force fled in a state of confusion once the firing started. Because they're good at this. <laughs> Three days later, the rest of the rebel group was dispersed from the tavern by the loyalists, including about 120 black soldiers under the command of Colonel Samuel Jarvis. So, this was interesting. Hundreds of black Canadians volunteered for service during the rebellion, or during both rebellions, helping to create several fighting units known as the Colored Corps. In Chatham, Toronto, Sam Hamilton, Sandwich, which is modern-day Windsor, and along the border in the Niagara region. There was a small second confrontation soon afterwards in Brantford, but again the insurgents were dispersed. Mackenzie and the other rebels' leaders fled with about 200 followers to the U.S., where, with the help of American volunteers, various rebel groups, 
launched raids against Upper Canada, keeping the border in a state of turmoil for nearly a year. To support of the Americans, who wished to liberate Canada from British rule, Mackenzie took control of, the na- of Navy Island, yeah, in the Niagara River, upriver from the falls, and proclaimed it Republic of Upper Canada. <laughs> Not very original. <laughs> no. <laughs> he was forced to withdraw on January 14th after Canadian volunteers burned the rebel ship, Caroline, that was supplying Mackenzie's forces and set it adrift over the falls. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> they lit this thing on fire and sent it over, over the, the falls. falls. That's amazing. That Why a, didn't I learn this in school? That's a Viking funeral if there ever was. <laughs> that's a Viking slaughter. No, I meant like the funeral. I know, I know, but yeah. Anyway, so needless to say, the insurgency fizzled after 1838. <laughs> um, after their ship went over the falls on fire, things kind of took a turn for. So the their rebellion was definitely worse than. The upper Canada, or lower. the lower Canada. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, the lower Canadians didn't have a ship go over the falls on fire. That's so. kind of, I yeah. mean, it's horrible that people died <coughs> and whatnot. But oh, no that, one was in the boat. Oh, just, well, that's still, anyway, I'm just. At least I don't think anyone was in the boat. Holy, sh- I'm just didn't amazed really speci- by that. It didn't specify if people were in the boat, but I'm pretty sure they weren't. <laughs> Since they set it adrift, it means to me that no one was in the boat because no one was trying to control it. That's amazing that they so. sent it over a Falls. On fire. How big was this? Specifically on fire. Sorry, how big was this boat again? I have no idea. I just said oh it was a rebel ship. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, that is hilarious. I Okay, people, now you see why we love history so much. Because we learn fascinating stuff like this. I'm definitely not expecting it to be a man of war. I... But even if it's like a sloop, that's insane. Wow. It doesn't look small. Yeah, that's a pre- okay. That's the steamer. That's a ship we just, on. That's Lindsay a just found a photo on. that I'm gonna actually encourage her to post on the. Oh my god. Okay. So more information on the burning of the Caroline. <laughs> so on the de- December 29th, 1837, Andrew Drew, a Royal Navy commander, was sent to dispose of the Caroline. That same evening, Drew and a hand-picked group of militia members rowed out the out to Navy Island and discovered that the Caroline was already gone. Then they decided to cross the river and found the steamer safely moored under the cannons of Fort Schlosser. In minutes, Drew and his men boarded, killed a watchman, cut the mooring cables, and set the Caroline on fire. As the vessel drifted downstream toward Niagara Falls, the flames lit up the night sky and guided Drew and his men back to Upper Canada. It went over Niagara Falls. Yeah, on fire. That's amazing. That's my favorite thing. Okay, (laughs) anyway... Sorry, sorry, Lindsay. That, that's, that's okay. I'm just, my mind <laughs> just, is just completely blown. I think it's hilarious. Anyway. It's so, oh, anyway, sorry. Um, Do continue. That's okay. I probably should have done more research on that in the first place because that's pretty awesome. That anyway. awesome. <laughs> I, it seems weird that we're both going, they set a ship on fire. Awesome. I mean, I wrote it in my notes, so like, I, I knew about this and I just wasn't even paying attention. But it went over the falls. <laughs> like, anyway, sorry. Yeah. Anyway, so insurgency obviously fizzled after 1838. <laughs> <laughs> Sending your ship over the falls on fire is a bit of a message. Mackenzie spent years in exile in New York before returning to Canada following a government pardon in 1849. Others were not so lucky. Although only three men, two rebels and one loyalist, were killed in the early stages of the rebellion, many captured rebels were executed by the government, because, obviously. Historians have disagreed about how much popular support each rebellion received, and to what degree the uprisings were actually necessary. One argument is that they were the inevitable result of undemocratic, unworkable colonial systems and an imperial government in London that was out of touch and unsympathetic to reform. So, I mean, kind of think. There's a lot of comparisons to the up, to these 
rebellions with like the American Revolution and a lot of those conflicts because yeah. even though they were a lot incompetent, yeah, like sadder <laughs> in terms of their actual competency, they're kind of a joke in comparison to the American Revolution. But um... it just goes to show just how little support, <laughs> how little support those sentiments had. Well, at that time, I don't even know if they didn't have sent support. I just don't know that they were good at what they were doing. Probably both. But anyway, um, another view is that the insurgency has amounted to pointless bloodletting, which may have even slowed the pace of reform. I think that's kind of not revisionist isn't the right word, but I mean, it's kind of like an obvious view. Like, well, duh, obviously it did that. <laughs> like. <laughs> kind of a pointless thing to say but anyway i understand uh regardless the rebellions prompted the appointment of lord durham and the writing of the durham report which recommended the two colonies be united as one the province of canada came into being in 1841 and this in turn led to the introduction of responsible government though the rebels did not achieve their goals papineau and Mackenzie each found a place in history as unlikely folk heroes who fought bravely if not carefully for democratic ideals and one of them had a ship go over their fucking balls I can't get over that. <laughs> <laughs> I can't either. Anyway, that's amazing. Their failure also paved the way for moder- moderate, moderate, fe- or ro- moderate. Okay, so first time I read this, I definitely read feminist. It's not feminist. <laughs> <laughs> their failure paved the way for more moderate reformists, such as Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine and Ken. Also, how awesome of a name is Hippolyte? What? H i p p o l y t e. Huh. Love it. Hippolyte. Yeah, Hippolyte, I don't know. I'm saying Hippolyte. <laughs> Louis Hippolyte Lafontaine in Canada East, formerly Lower Canada, and Robert Baldwin in Canada West, formerly Upper Canada. We're really good at naming things. Who would work together across language lines to bring democratic reform and self-government to the newly united Canada? Uh, united over horrible rebellion. Yeah. And ships going over the falls. <laughs> Can I, uh, I just want to quickly point something out. I've seen the, like, I have, I've seen the, fla- have you seen the flags of, like, each... Yeah. Rebellion. So, like, the Patriot flag looks pretty nice. It's like, uh, it's green, white, and red. It looks pretty nice, and and whatnot. The lower or the upper Canada one, not so much. Kind of as disorganized as they were. It's, well, I mean, it says the word liberty. It's not a good flag. Yeah, and I. <clears throat> they sucked it. They sucked it. A couple of things, rebelling and uh, and flag and flags. Yeah. And I'm, also keeping ships not from going over the falls. Yeah, that that too. For people who don't know me, I'm a really, I'm a big fan of flags. I'm not a snob like some people I know, but or some people I know of, but I'm not directing okay, that I at you. I was like, what? <laughs> I'm not directing that at you. Don't worry. No, 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 no. <coughs> anyway, um, no, I'm not. I'm not a snob as some like some people I listen to or anything like that. But anyway, so another <laughs> point of contention. On top of there being dangers from, or, yeah, from being enemies from within, there was also the problem of enemies from without. And once again, they would come from, dun 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 the United States. Although not acting on loyalty to the United States. Following the American Civil War, Irish veterans used their military training and equipment left over to organize what is known as the Finian Brotherhood, mm. which is was an Irish Republican movement. <laughs> so, uh, for our Irish listeners, I'm pretty sure that Finian is a derogatory term. I know in Northern Ireland it definitely is. 
But it's like for the Irish in a North well, America. I think it is now, but I mean, it wasn't always because there mm. were Fenian raids in Ireland. Too. Yeah, but I, I even know, apparently, even with Iro, Irish Americans and Irish Canadians, it's not, they don't consider it a derogatory yeah, term. But in Northern Ireland, it definitely is. Yeah. Uh, so just clarifying that, I will be calling them the Fenians. It's not an offense to you. So. I think of it as the same as the Fenians who rebelled during Victor- in Victorian Ireland. Yeah, exactly. It's but it's just used, it's derogatory now because of the troubles. But anyway, this is like almost a supervillain mission or a supervillain thing. Their goal was to invade Canada and hold it for ransom in exchange for Irish independence. <laughs> okay. I don't know why that brings this. <laughs> Like it brings me joy. This I whole feel bad plan. for laughing, but like it's fun. no, it's it is ridiculous. <laughs> it's like people hilarious. would, but it's also like that's it is hilarious. Like I like that the, Canada's ransom. I know it's <laughs> it's I it's, it's just like it's like huh. what can we do with these weapons? I know we'll invade I Canada. Feel like we can't talk about Canadian history and not laugh at it. Like us personally, yeah. when we talk about it, it's well, like, it's just kind of funny. People know that. Like what is it? Comedy equals tragedy plus time. Yeah. So, but the first raid was on what's known as Campobello Island in New Brunswick, which interestingly enough, the only road accessing it is through the, it's from the United States. So you literally have to go into the United States and over the bridge to get to this place. When 700 Fenian Brotherhood members attempted to seize the island, however, British commander Charles Hastings Doyle was made aware of the raid and set off from Halifax on April 17, 1866 to reinforce the garrison. Terrified of the British strength, the Brotherhood fled back into the United States, and in the aftermath, the British would begin to reinforce New Brunswick and much of the Maritimes. A second raid would happen on June 2nd, 1866, this time in Ridgeway, Ontario. Between 600 and 700 Brotherhood crossed the border into Ontario and began attacking the town of Ridgeway. The invasion was initially fought back, but quickly the the defenders became confused. They mistook a group of Brotherhood for a relief force and began withdrawing, which the other troops mistook for retreat and panic ensued. The Fenians held Ridgeway for a few days, but then turned their attention to Fort Erie, where they fought the small garrison stationed there. Both battles were victories for the Fenians, and it was also the uh, Ridgeway was also the largest battle fought during the Fenian raids. It sh- I should also mention that despite the garrison in Fort Erie being small, they fought very valiantly and tough, and it took a lot for the Fen- the larger Fenians forces to actually invade this place. Also, an interesting fact, Fort Erie is apparently one of the most haunted places in Canada. So there's that. After the battles, a larger British and Canadian detachment was dispatched to defeat the Fenians. Not willing to be captured or overrun, the Fenians fled back into the United States, where they were arrested by the American authorities. Ridgeway is considered Canada's first modern battle and was the largest during the Fenian raids, which would continue until 1871. The raids also increased anti-American sentiment in the province of Canada and also helped support increase for the idea of Canadian confederation within the British government and the British population. Should be mentioned that the idea of confederation was also being, was at this, like by 1866 being widely discussed at this point, but it wasn't necessarily a popular idea in with the British until this point because they realized, yeah, maybe it'd be a good idea if we let the Canadians kind of 
do their thing. <laughs> I mean, there's still there'll still be a dominion and whatnot. I, oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but yeah. <laughs> the original fathers of Confederation are those delegates who attended any of the conferences held at Charlottetown in Quebec in 1864 or in London in 1866, leading to Confederation. There were 36 original fathers of Confederation. Hewitt Bernard, who was the recording secretary at the Charlottetown Conference, is considered by some to be a father of Confederation as well. The later, quote, fathers, who brought the other provinces into Confederation after 1867, are also referred to as fathers of Confederation. So as a result, Armour de Cosmos, who was instrumental in bringing democracy to British Columbia and in bringing his province into Confederation, is considered by many to be a father of Confederation. As well, Joey Smallward referred to himself as the last father of Confederation because he helped bring Newfoundland into Confederation in 1949. That's something to mention. Like every time a province was 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 like joined Canada, yeah, they it was joined Confederation. Confederation, yeah. Yeah. So Alberta joined Confederation in 1905. Same with Saskatchewan. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Queen Victoria has also been called the mother of Confederation. Well, she actually had no. Well. It's, her real role was questionable, but her role technically <laughs> in Confederation is actually recognized by the celebration of Victoria Day. That's what Victoria Day is actually for in Canada. Is it? Yeah. It's oh. her role in Confederation, because that's not actually her birthday. Well, I knew that. I just <laughs> thought it was celebrating yeah. her birthday, but anyway. No, it's actually for her role in Confederation. See, even we learn things on, here in Panastoria. Now and then. <laughs> uh, four other additional individu- individuals have been labeled as fathers of Confederation. Uh, Hewitt Bernard, who was, yeah, recording secretary at Charlottetown. Leaders most responsible for bringing three specific provinces into confederation after 1867, and uh, the first provisional government were also considered. Uh, of the 36 fathers, 11 were Freemasons, <laughs> interestingly enough. Uh, notably, John A. MacDonald was a Freemason. I don't want to hear any conspiracy stuff in the comments, people, please. Yeah. Do continue. Uh, yeah. So... The provisional government established by Louis Riel um, in Manitoba in 1870, or 1867, sorry. No, 1870, I lied. Is, like, what's generally kind of considered a father of confederation. I don't think Louis Riel really got counted, because... Reasons. Reasons. Justifiably or not. Yeah, so he helped. Louis Riel is pretty responsible for Manitoba becoming part of confederation, so... uh, In 1870. But yeah, there's... There's a lot of them, but John A. MacDonald, obviously, is one. John Hamilton Gray, John Mercer Johnson from New Brunswick was at all three conferences. Sir Hector Louis Langevin was at all three conferences. Sir John A. MacDonald was at all three. Uh, Jonathan McCulley from Nova Scotia. William McDougall from Ontario. Sir Samuel Leonard Tilly from New Brunswick. Charles Tupper from Nova Scotia. Who else? Charles Tupper is a name that Sir sticks out of my Alexander head. Alexander Tillett Gilt was at all three from Quebec. And Sir George Etienne Cartier was at all three. And Sir Adams George Archibald was at all three. So those are the only ones that actually went to all three of them. Therefore, probably, arguably, say the most important. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know much about them. I will admit I definitely slacked on research for this a little. Well, I'll explain, like, why there's not a lot in this in my next, like, when I, when I start talking about the co- Charlottetown Conference, yeah. but there is a good reason why we, mean, we don't have a lot, so. I mean, it is a very specific event, which I guess you could write a lot about. You could, well, people, you could and people have, but it's just, yeah. there is an explanation as to why. Proceed. 
So for decades, the British had desired for the Maritimes to form a union in order to lessen the economic burden on the crown and to improve economic and military power in the region based on fears during the American Civil War. Because as little as the British really did anything during the Civil War, other than saying we won't support either side, there was, it still freaked them out. <laughs> The, the Charlottetown Conference was initially meant to be a meeting between Nova Scotia, New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Newfoundland, although the latter did not receive notification of the conference in time and therefore did not attend, which is And then just gave up until 1949. Pretty much. <laughs> just gave up for 100 years. It's cool. But, yeah. Or not quite, but... Uh, yeah, so they weren't able to attend, so sh just quick... For people who don't know, Charlottetown is the capital city of Prince Edward Island, which is the smallest province in Canada. It's both, tiny. Both in landmass and population. Yeah. It is It is literally landmass. No, it is literally population, is what I was going to say, of like a hundred, of just over 100,000 people. <laughs> it's small. And then Charlottetown is the capital. I've been there. I love it. It's beautiful. The whole province is beautiful. Yeah, I would definitely recommend to go. There's a Confederation Museum, which we'll get there in a minute. So, the province of Canada, which is modern-day Ontario and Quebec, like we mentioned earlier, caught wind of the conference and requested an expansion of the timetable to include Canada as part of the Union. The conference wasn't a secret and was public knowledge throughout the colonies, but I have to mention this because it was hilarious to find this out. There was a circus in Charlottetown at the same time as the conference, which the locals of Charlottetown were a lot more interested in. I mean, to be fair, if it were me around that time, I probably probably would be more interested in a circus than... Yeah. Because, like, as, as, at the time, this conference was not significant. No. I mean, it was public knowledge and everything, but it's just like, oh, it's just like like political stuff. Like, oh. it wasn't going to change anything, really. Crusty white dudes meet in a room. It's all Basically, good. yeah. And also, it, it, it was apparently the first time the circus had, had visited... The, uh, the province in over two decades. Huh. It was an exciting thing. Mattered a little more. Yeah. I didn't find out which circus it was, but it was a circus. I assume there were elephants and whatnot. So the SS Victoria arrived with the delegates with the delegates at the Great George Street Wharf, which had no workers for it and therefore could not take people from the ship to the shore. Therefore, PEI delegate William Henry Pope took it upon it himself to row out and greet the other delegates himself while on the water in a rowboat. <laughs> the size of the delegation meant most of most had to sleep on the Victoria and the nearby Franklin, because on top of like this being a pretty big delegation for Charlottetown, plus the accommodation needed to keep people going to the circus and working for the circus, there wasn't enough room. However, <laughs> The maritime delegates were able to find a they were able to find accommodation for the maritime delegates on the island, and they were allowed to leave the ship. Whereas, like Johnny McDonald and <laughs> Alexander Galt were stayed on the ship, which I mean didn't sound bad. Yeah, I'm sure, it was swanky. Probably the conference began on September first and continued until the 9th. Most of the proceedings took place in what is known as Province House, which is now the home of the modern-day Legislative Assembly of Prince Edward Island. This is also where the Confederation... If I'm not mistaken, this is where the Confederation Museum... And I just want to briefly go into this because this place is actually pretty 
incredible, and I highly recommend going to Prince Edward Island. I just recommend going to Prince Edward Island yeah. in general, but definitely go to this place. They have these like miniature replicas of the rooms in yeah. one of the places, and you go up them and press a button, and it does what's the pepper ghost effect, which is like. For people who don't know, the Pepper's Ghost effect is when you have an angled glass, like at a 45-degree angle, and then a projection goes in the glass, and it looks like there are ghosts walking around the room. So they have a miniature version of that, where you look at these miniatures, and then it does this projection of the people in the room talking and doing the... It's neat. Like, I, I know I'm a nerd, yeah, but it was kind of neat That's to see. Cool. I was also quite young. That's right. And I'd never seen anything like this before. That's so cool. So... Several issues were brought forward. First, there was a considerable fears over what the United States will do once their civil war had concluded. The colonies had been aware for some time the British were working towards making the colonies mostly fend for themselves. It was during the discussion of the latter, the idea of, of an independent dominion actually formed. So there was no actual plan to make an independent dominion prior to these discussions and this conference. So in reality, the... Canada was born in a building in on Prince Edward Island, which is pretty awesome. Yeah. Unfortunately and curiously to me, there's actually there was actually no formal records of the meetings kept. And actually most of the information that we know of what took place and what was discussed at the conference are from private letters and handwritten notes from those in attendance who either sent letters back to their loved ones to let them know what was going on or kept notes about what was discussed during the day. So there's like literally no, I mean, most other, like the other conferences that we talk about had formal notes, yeah. whereas this didn't, which is too bad because it would be good to know what went on. So following the conference, the delegates agreed to meet again the following month in Quebec City as a means to finalize negotiation. So while... I find I feel Charlottetown is super important. The Quebec conference was a lot larger and included a lot more people. There are 32 delegates plus various other administrative people there. And so it was a big conference. The main debate and source of contention at the conference was the idea of either forming a unitary state or a legislative union, which is a more federal union. So to briefly explain, a unitary state is where most power is, invest is surrounded by the, or is infested by the central government. So examples of this would be the United Kingdom and Spain, whereas a federal union has the, the individual provinces have their powers granted to them by the constitution, whereas in a unitary state, it's granted by the central government. John A. Macdonald for favored a unitary state due to his study of the American Civil War and concluding the federal model was weak and unstable, which, I mean, I can, I, I get that argument, especially after the Civil War. The Maritimes and Quebec representatives favored stronger provincial powers and rights, particularly Quebec, over fears of losing their language and cultural identity. Instead, a compromise was agreed to with power split between a central government and local provincial legislatures. The lower house would be elected, which is now the current House of Commons, while the upper house would be an appointed position, which is the current Senate. The house would represent would be represented based on 
provincial population, while the Senate would be based on regional representation. The debate over the representation of both, both houses lasted an entire day and was the longest debate during the... So the idea was that... There, also, there's, there's something known as the 72 resolutions that were drafted during the conference. I won't name them all because, I mean, I don't want to torture Lindsay with this anymore than I already have. Uh, so just a few, the, and these are from the actual resolutions. The best interests and present and future prosperity of North, British North America will be promoted by a federal union under the crown of Great Britain, provided such union can be affected on principles just to the several provinces. There shall be a general legislature or parliament for the federated provinces composed of a legislative council and a house of commons. Upper Canada shall be represented in the legislative council by 24 members, Lower Canada by 24 members, and the three maritime provinces by 24 members, of which Nova Scotia shall have 10, New Brunswick 10, and Prince Edward Island 4 members. The colony of Newfoundland shall be entitled to enter a pr the proposed union with representation in the Legislative Council of six members. No lands or property belonging to the general or local governments shall be liable to taxation, and Her Majesty the Queen, in this case Victoria, be solicited to determine the rank and name of the federated provinces. Which, being from the background that we are, <laughs> kind of is like really yeah so that's just a bit of an idea there's 72 points they're all up on the internet if you want to look at them but i mean that's as interesting as it gets <laughs> the maritimes were eager for a federated union as a means to improve their economy and commerce with the possibility to participate in a free trade market which i mean when you're a region that's primarily made up of ports it's pretty beneficial to say the least just a touch oh yeah however the pei delegates remain skeptical of a federated union led by mcdonald's and i don't really blame them yeah. the quebec conference also agreed on ottawa as the location for the capital primarily due to its centralized location at the time i mean it made a lot more sense back then than it does now for it to be the capital but I don't see Regina or Saskatoon becoming the capital of Canada anytime soon. No. Winnipeg actually possibly makes the most sense in terms of centrality because of where it actually sits. Yeah. Furthermore, the Christian faith would be protected with the Catholic and Protestant faiths granted equal rights and special education privileges. As far as I could tell, there's no mention of any other religions. The crown would remain as head of state, protector, and head of executive authority. At the time, the federal government was granted considerable, po considerable power to reject provincial legislation that they disapproved of. I believe that this clause has been taken out. I mean, there's still, of course, clashes between the federal government and the, the provinces, but that only, always seems to pertain to constitutionality. Yeah. Typically. So I don't think the I don't think the federal government can be like, oh, we don't agree with that law, so you you can't pass it. No, no, they can't. The only way they can do it is like, well, that's against the constitution. Yeah, there has to be a challenge. So yeah. So that's the Quebec conference is pretty pretty significant. I also went where the Quebec conference was 
for a school trip, and that was actually pretty interesting to me. But again, I am a nerd. <laughs> the, yeah, so following the Quebec province, pro- oh my god, the Quebec conference, <laughs> um, the province of Canada's legislature passed a bill approving the Union. The Union proved more controversial in the Maritime Provinces, however, and it was not until 1866 that New Brunswick and Nova Scotia passed Union resolutions, while Prince Edward Island and Newfoundland continued to opt against joining. Which is hilarious. Ironic. Because it's in PEI. But anyway. <laughs> uh, in December 1866, 16 delegates from the province of Canada, New Brunswick, and Nova Scotia traveled to London, where the 4th Earl of Carnarvon... Carnarvon? 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 Presented like, each... It's, it's probably tomato-tomato thing. Don't know. Anyway. Presented each to... Don't know, don't care. Um, presented each to Queen Victoria in private audience, as well as holding court for their wives and daughters. At meetings held at Westminster Palace Hotel, the delegates reviewed and approved the 72 resolutions. Although Charles Tupper had promised anti-union forces in Nova Scotia he would push for amendments, he was unsuccessful in getting any passed. Now known as the London Resolutions, the conference's decisions were forwarded to the Colonial Office. After breaking for Christmas, the delegates reconvened in January 1867 and began drafting the British North America Act. The fourth Earl of Carnarvon continued to have a central role in drafting the act at Highclere Castle alongside the Prime Minister of Canada, John A. Macdonald, George Etienne Cartier, and Alexander Tillich Galt, who signed the visitor book in 1866. After suggestions of Franklin and Guelphinland, they agreed the new country should be called Canada. Canada East should be renamed Quebec, and Canada West should be renamed Ontario. There was, however, heated debate about how the new country should be designated. Ultimately, the delegates elected to call the new country the Dominion of Canada after Kingdom and Confederation, among other options, were rejected. The term Dominion was allegedly suggested by Sir Samuel Leonard Tilley. The delegates completed their draft of the British North America Act by February 1867. The act was presented to Queen Victoria on February 11, 1867. The bill was introduced in the House of Lords the next day. The bill was quickly approved by the House of Lords and then quickly, also quickly approved by the British House of Commons. The Conservative Lord Derby was Prime Minister of the United Kingdom at the time. The Act received royal assent on March 29, 1867, and set July 1, 1867 as the date for the Union. That leads us to the British North America Act. Like I said, no act like the British North America Act. <laughs> so, yeah, Confederation was accomplished when the Queen gave royal assent. On March 29th, followed by a royal proclamation stating, quote, We do ordain, declare, and command that on and after the first day of July, 1867, the provinces of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick shall form and be one dominion under the name of Canada. That act, which united the province of Canada with the colonies of New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, came into, into effect on July 1st. So, today. Yay! <laughs> The Act replaced the Act of Union of 1840, which had unified Upper Canada and Lower Canada after the ridiculous rebellions. Separate provinces were re-established under their current names of Ontario and Quebec. July 1 is now obviously celebrated. as a public holiday, so I hope you're crushing beers as a thanks <laughs> to Canada. I'll or, be in Victoria. Or other uh, beverages. I'll be in Victoria at the time of this release, so... Cool. Um, I'll be looking after your cat. Uh, the form, the form of kind of, the kind of, oh my god, okay. You mean, you mean you'll be coming in and making sure my cat's still alive? Yes. Yeah. Um, the form of the country's government, so, was influenced by our American friends. Um, but noting the flaws perceived in the American system, the Fathers of Confederation opted to, opted to retain a monarchical form of government. Damn you, Johnny. 
John A. Macdonald, speaking in 1865 about the proposals for the upcoming Confederation of Canada, said, quote, By adhering to the monarchical principle, we avoid one defect inherent in the Constitution of the United States. By the election of the president by a majority and for a short period, he, is, he never is the sovereign and chief of the nation. He is never looked up to by the whole people as the head and front of the nation. He is at best but the successful leader of a party. This defect is all the greater on account of the practice of re-election. During his first term of office, he is employed in taking steps to secure his own re-election and is for his party a continuance of power. We avoid this by adhering to the monarchical principle, the sovereign whom you respect and love. I believe that it is of utmost importance to have that principle recognized so that we shall have a sovereign who is placed above the region of party, to whom all parties look up, who is not elevated by the action of one party nor depressed by the action of another, who is the common head and sovereign of all. Okay, Johnny. Uh, the form of government chosen is regarded as having uh, created a federation that is a kingdom in its own right. John A. Macdonald had spoken of founding a great British monarchy and wanted the newly created country to be called the Kingdom of Canada. Although it had its monarch in London, the colonial office opposed as, opposed as premature and pretentious the term kingdom, as it felt it might antagonize the United States. That's fair. The term dominion was chosen to indicate Canada's status as a self-governing polity of the British Empire, the first time it was used in reference to a country. Interesting. Uh, while the British North America Act eventually resulted in Canada having more autonomy than it had before, it was far from full independence from the United Kingdom. Obviously. According to the Supreme Court of Canada, Canadian sovereignty was, quote, acquired in the period between its separate signature of the Treaty of Versailles in 1919 and the Statute of Westminster in 1931, long after the Confederation of 1867. Defense of British North America became a Canadian responsibility. Uh, foreign policy remained in British hands, the Judicial Committee of the Privy Council remained Canada's highest court of appeal, and the Constitution could be amended only in Britain until 1982. I think so. I think it might be 1980, actually. Early, between 80 and 82, in yeah. the 80s. Early 80s. It was when we could finally do the Constitution shit in Canada. <laughs> yeah. Oh, 82. Yeah. 82? Yeah. Okay. Um... Yeah, so gradually Canada gained more autonomy, and in 1931 we obtained almost full autonomy within the British Commonwealth with the Statute of Westminster. And this is my favorite story about Canadian autonomy, is that when World War II started, Canada declared war a week after Great Britain, so that we could symbolically say that we were declaring war for ourselves, not on behalf of the British, because in World War I we had to fight on behalf of them. So... That's my favorite thing. Because the provinces of Canada were unable to agree on a constitutional amending formula, this power remained with the British Parliament. In 1982, the Constitution was patriated when Queen Elizabeth II gave her royal assent to the Canada Act of 1982. The Constitution of Canada is made up of a number of codified acts and uncodified traditions. One of the principal documents, obviously, is the Constitution Act of 1982, which renamed the British North America Act of 1867 to the Constitution Act of 1867. So technically, there is no more British North America Act. Nope. Which I'm fine with. I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, so Dominion elections were held in August and September to elect the first parliament, and the four new provinces' governments recommended the 72 individuals, 24 for Quebec and Ontario, each, 12 each for New Brunswick and Nova Scotia, who could sit in the Senate. The Anti-Confederation Party won 18 of 19 federal Nova Scotia seats in September 1867, <laughs> and in the Nova Scotia provincial election of 1868, 36 out of 38 seats in the legislature. Oh my god. <laughs> For seven years, William Anand and Joseph Howe led the ultimately unsuccessful fight to convince British imperial authorities to release Nova Scotia from Confederation. The government was vocally against Confederation, contending it was no more than the annexation of the province to the pre-existing province of Canada. 
which is like not wrong, I guess. Not right either. No. Uh, prior to the coming into effect of the Constitution Act, there had been, well, the British North America Act, now the Constitution Act, there had been some concern regarding a potential legislative vacuum that would occur over the 15-month period between the prorogation of the province of Canada's final parliament in August 1866 and the opening of the now Dominion of Canada's first parliament in November 1867. To prevent this, the Constitution Act provided for continuance of existing laws from the three colonies of Canada, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick until the new laws could be established in the Dominion. Thus, the, quote, Dominion's financial system, structures, and actors were able to operate under the provisions of the old province of Canada Acts. Following Confederation and many institutions and organizations were continued and assumed the same responsibilities for the new federal government that it had held as a provincial organization. So, pretty much just grandfathered in. Mm. And uh, now we have Canada. Yep. You're welcome, world. Here's a a quiz for you. Do you know what Canada's official full title is? Like its full name is? Dominion of Canada? Nope. Uh, Canada. Oh, right. It, it, it did change. When did it, that change? Cause I it, think it changed with the Canada Act. Okay. I might have changed earlier, but I Cause... don't know. But yeah, we're, like it's funny because like, you have the United States of America, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Well, not Canada is just Canada. We don't have... We're not the Federation of Canada, the Dominion of Canada. We're just Canada. Hmm. Which I actually think is kind of funny. I kind of still wish we were. I mean, I, okay, so I hate the, I hate, like, okay. So I hate the Dominion of Canada for the, like, making us part of the British thing, but I really like how it sounds. It sounds cool. I'll give you that. Like, it's kind of cool. Yeah, I will give you that. I just think it's cool that we're just like, we don't need, no, we don't need fancy titles. We're just Canada. We're just fucking Canada. Yeah. But I, again, Dominion of Canada did sound kind of cool. Yeah. Well, What's in, one thing interesting I found out recently, apparently Mexico is actually the United Mexican States. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that until recent, but I mean, every, everyone calls it Mexico. That's but right. anyway, so just quickly, because we actually did pretty decently. We're coming up on an hour now. Sweet. So we actually did pretty well. So uh, as stated before, July 1st, 1867, Ontario, Quebec, Nova Scotia, and New Brunswick joined Confederation. The next to join Confederation was Manitoba on July 15th, 1870, along with the Northwest Territories on the same day. After that, on July 20th, 1871, it was British Columbia. On July 1st, 1873, it was Prince Edward Island. So British, so BC and Manitoba and the Northwest Territories joined before Prince Edward Island. They held out for a long time. They did. Not as long as Newfoundland, though. Yeah, Newfoundland was a... I'll get to that in a moment. But like Newfoundland just gave up after their first attempt. Uh, June 13th, 1898 was the Yukon Territory. On September 1st, 1905, Saskatchewan and Alberta were created out of territory from the Northwest Territories to form their own provinces. And then on March 31st, 1949, Newfoundland and Labrador officially joined Confederation. And as far as I know, the reason why they held out for so long is because they were actually a independent dominion within the British Empire. Yeah, they were essentially just British. Yeah. B- basically, they but they did have yeah. a lot of like Yeah. Well, World War 2 really changed things for them. They were very independent, like Yeah, they were. Yeah. yeah. And like I think uh, they joined mostly out of economic reasons. Yeah. And I know Confederation was extremely for Newfoundland was actually very very controversial because Yeah, it still is. It very much still I 
maybe I think it's apparently a bit less contentious now. Yeah, well, I think people are just over it. Yeah, <laughs> I but, mean, um, at some point you have yeah. to give up. Uh, so Newfoundland was the last. Newfoundland and Labrador was the last province. You you hear me say Newfoundland and Labrador. Newfoundland is the island, and then Labrador is the peninsula. Uh, well, the mainland. Yeah, it's uh, it's part of the mainland. Northern. I think it's like technically North a Quebec. peninsula. No. Isn't it? Nope. Oh, oh no, it's not. No, because well, the, saying that's a peninsula would say all yeah. of Quebec is a peninsula. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, Nova Scotia is a peninsula though. Yeah, yeah. And then the last entity, change. I guess. Yeah, change. Uh, change. Uh, to join, yeah, it was Nunavut on April first, nineteen ninety nine, which and is literally just subdividing a huge chunk of the Northwest Territories into its own territory. Yeah, it is the largest territory, like in Canada, out of even all of the provinces. Massive. And only 24,000 people live there. It's, it's an, tiny. It's an Inuit territory. Yeah, it was created It was created uh, as a homeland for the for, Inuit. for the Inuit people, which in the United States, I think you still call them Eskimo. I don't know. Although that might be more of an umbrella Also, term. it doesn't have to be um, Inuit people. It's just Inuit because Inuit means people. Yeah. Well, it's the same as uh, uh, like the, the term Dene yeah. means, people. means people. So like yeah. the... Navajo call themselves Diné, and then mm-hmm. so anyway. I know. So yeah, so that that's that's where we are now. We are, you know what? Fuck it. I'm gonna argue. I'm gonna just say it. we are an independent country. I mean, we are. Like it's just really convoluted and dumb. I mean, who cares that the queen is still head of state? We're independent. I don't care what people say. I do still care for a lot of reasons. Well, I know but... you. I know you. I don't care what other people say because I've heard arguments saying that we're not actually independent where i'm like oh fuck no yeah, we are. no we're obviously independent the, th- um, the thing about like the whole thing with the queen is the way you explain it is that no matter what we just pass legislation that we wanted like she just lets us well she doesn't even she's not even involved we have a governor general yeah well she's i mean she she actually can't travel anymore she's so old yeah like she can't come to canada anymore so but i mean she did come here a lot though she did and i mean as much as, like, I, I think I cut this out of our ideologies episode. Sorry, I'll keep this brief. Um, but, like, Lindsay and I are not, like, we're not militantly. Oh, yeah, we did talk about it. I can't remember if I cut it out, though. Oh. But we're not, like, I wouldn't, we're not militantly uh, anti-monarchist. But we're, we definitely have what, what um, Republican ideologies. And we don't mean Republican Party, because fuck those guys. Uh no, we, we definitely feel that Canada should become a republic, and that's mostly because we want Canada to fully mature as an independent country. And in my opinion, I think it would actually be easier. It'll, it'll help a lot with, like, issues in Quebec. It'll help with a lot of issues. Yeah, but I, I mean, think Quebec would be a, a main one. The First Nations You can't decolonize people. if you're still a colony. Yeah, exactly. So, But, um, like, the, 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 the fact is... Uh, uh, at the same time, this is just for me speaking. I know how I've never, I'm not going to like openly advocate for republicanism while Queen Elizabeth is still alive, <laughs> considering how damn popular she is. And for good reasons. I mean, I love her. Yeah. Anyway. She's she's a gem. Interesting. Anyway, I'm we're going to. I'm going home now. So. Yeah, we're going to forego <laughs> uh, good news because this is like basically a bonus episode. This is a quick episode. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Hope uh, you guys The good news something. is that we exist. So there you go. And yeah. we're here. And Canada Day is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, Lindsay's about to pass out. So I'm going to let her go. So I let, let you go. God, I sound so creepy. But um, 
I'm going to shut up now. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, this is Jonah. And Lindsay. Thank you guys so much. Have a good one. Bye.